0: Hey folks, Chris Garlock here. This week's show is an encore of one of our very favorites. And just a reminder, you can check out all the latest network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Here's the show.
1: For five months, A thousand workers at Cases Plants in Iowa and Wisconsin have been on strike. All the things that
2: people are saying out there about unions, we debunked with one grant and one program. Like, no, teachers are innovative. No, unions can partner with administration to get great things done for students.
3: Our school leaders encourage us to teach culturally relevant curriculum, to talk about issues that matter to our students. I never thought that anything that I was doing would lead to me risking my career, really, until it became evident that that was happening.
4: The extreme example was Despair, Missouri, where a multinational company owned a mall, Westfield Mall, and said, "You know, we think this mall is blighted now because we don't have a Nordstrom yet." And the city, and the city council said, "You're right. You know, you're blighted. We're going to give you a 31 million dollar TIF deal to bring in Nordstrom." Among those that were
1: fired were NPS rangers that work in the park and work in other national parks. These are public servants that try to bring to attention to the American public. Maybe the narrative of our national park should be held to a higher standard, and the people that provide that narrative should have a better life.
0: You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show... An update on the Case New Holland strike from the Work Stoppage podcast. Then, reports from two education-focused podcasts. From AFT in Action, a conversation highlighting the advantages that a strong labor management relationship can have on working conditions and student learning. And from the CTU Speaks podcast, co-hosts Andrea Parker and Jim Staros talk with Lauren Bianchi and Chuck Stark, two teachers at Washington High School that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot sought to fire this past summer. Their crime? Teaching their students about the city's plan to move the toxic metal shredding corporation General Iron from wealthy Lincoln Park to the southeast side which has already suffered more pollution and toxic industry than almost any other region in Chicago. Do you get lost in all the mumbo-jumbo of incentives for developers and wonder what they actually cost taxpayers, local government, school districts, and even the public library? This week on the Heartland Labor Forum, the basics of TIFs, star bonds, and other ways we subsidize builders. Our last segment comes from 4315, a Labor Lab podcast. When tour guides at Yellowstone National Park started unionizing to bargain for better wages, a consistent work schedule, and better housing conditions, they were quickly fired. We'll hear from Ty Wheeler, one of the fired tour guides. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe and share the show, Sonic Solidarity Works. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
1: For five months, a thousand workers at cases plants in Iowa and Wisconsin have been on strike for better wages, for fair benefits, and to make the job, you know, an actual living career instead of the, you know, constant overtime, low wage, constantly like getting worse benefits situation that it has been there. And so they've been standing strong on the picket line for five months And have made real impacts on the company's production, but unfortunately management at the company still seems determined to try and break the strike by trying by basically ref- more or less refusing to negotiate with the workers
5: also crying for like oh uh, about like the similar to how the kroger workers that we reported on before is like oh what about our competitive advantage in the oh. industry <laughs> and Whoa. uh and you know calling for for like the workers to to worry about the company's bottom line versus the john deere workers where i mean we have uh, a a union or yeah a union Worker uh, Andy Gar, who told the militant, "The company here tells us we have to produce more because we are in competition with John Deere. But the deer workers bring us water and food and drop them off at the kitchen. The president of their local calls us regularly to ask if we what we need. Workers uh, from Conagra have been down here, as have the nurses. And I just like I think that this particularly highlights how." the real contradiction between the owning class and the working class and showing that like the John Deere workers don't give a fuck about John Deere or Case New Holland when yeah. it comes to specific preferential bullshit over you know their their competitive advantage they care about their fellow workers there is that divide of the workers versus the owning class
6: that's yeah, it and I- I mean, these quotes from the workers really show that kind of, like, clear-eyed conviction that they have. But I think a real testament to that is going on strike for five months, which is a long-ass fucking time. And, I mean, you you hear that kind of sentiment echoed again in a quote we have here from Nick Guernsey, president of UAW Local 807 in Burlington, Iowa, who said that no matter how long it takes, they will not try to force any kind of concessionary deal onto their members. And his quote starts, quote, if this offer doesn't sell itself— I'm not a salesman. I'm not selling it to my members. Now, I don't feel we're being greedy. When the company makes a statement across the table, we're not interested in giving up anything we've gained. And it's like, I love that idea because I feel like one of the biggest issues that we talk, that we talk about in some kind of terms on this show sometimes is that like if you are even nominally in a leadership role in a union, there's often a lot of pressure to try and shove mm-hmm. tentative agreements down your membership's throats. And to see people like a UAW local leader here who's saying like, if the offer doesn't sell itself, fuck it, it goes in the bin. That's like, I love that energy. That's the correct way to handle this.
0: Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees
2: in nearly 90 unions across the state.
7: My name is Jan Hockadel, your state-fed president and your host for today's episode. Today, we will be talking about how creating a climate of collaboration can really help make progress in public schools possible. And when educators and other school community members feel that they have a voice and that they are valued, the school community can just achieve so much more. And a great example of this type of relationship is the Meriden Teachers Union or MFT, which over time has built a trusting collaborative relationship with their district administrators and the superintendent. And to help with the discussion today and explain how those relationships evolved, we have Lauren Mancini, who has been an educator for 33 years, 24 of them with the Meriden public school system. And she's currently a social studies teacher and department chair at Maloney High School. We have Dr. Mark Benigni, a former tutor, a special ed teacher at Platt High School in Meriden, who then became an assistant principal in the Berlin Public Schools and was a former principal in the Cromwell Public Schools. And then in 2010, Mark became the superintendent of the Meriden Public Schools. Welcome to AFT in Action, Mark.
2: Thanks, Jan, and it's great to be with Lauren.
7: So Mark, when you first became superintendent in 2010, um, there was a national like anti-union campaign that was being driven by the the Tea Party. We all remember what happened in Wisconsin with Governor Walker. So what made you wanna go in just a completely different direction that would foster that collaborative relationship with our local union?
2: You know, I, I was a union member, I was a teacher. Um, I also was an administrator and I worked for superintendents and everyone had a differing opinion, but what I saw is we could, we could spend our time fighting and arguing about every issue, and it would take us away from the true work that we all valued and wanted. I don't think anyone goes into education, whether you're a tutor or a teacher, or an administrator or a superintendent, without a passion for learning and a passion for student success. And I just watched too many people get caught in the, the anger, the, the difficult conversations, and, and you'd spend all of your time fighting with one another rather than spending your time collaborating and really doing innovative, creative things for teachers. And
7: so Lauren, you know, let me ask you, the Meriden Federation of Teachers has been held as an example of labor management collaborations, and you've received a number of AFT innovation grants. Can you share some of your proudest union administrative collaborative accomplishments that you've had over the last couple of years? One thing
8: resonates with me is when Randy Weingarten said solution-driven unionism. I don't think I ever come down here or to the table without at least an idea of what could be a solution. Doesn't mean I'll win, it doesn't mean it's something I'll get, but I do have something. So in that collaborative idea, we're always looking for ways to move the district forward and do things. So the innovation grant was a perfect opportunity for the Meriden Public Schools and the MFT to work together to try to move forward with more education, more sound education, working better with community partners. Um, It's been a big push lately with the um, community-based schools and Meriden being such a community-driven atmosphere, that's always a forefront item in our heads. So the innovation grant and winning that allowed Meriden to say, hey, community schools could be here. We can achieve what we need to achieve with our kids. We can pay our teachers something to be able to do that and work all pieces of it to come to the table to be able to do something and move it forward. So Mark, on the same vein, what do you think is your proudest moment working with us?
2: Well, I definitely think winning that first AFT Innovation Grant and and meeting Randy Weingarten and having conversations about how we were doing work here. And um, even listening to her share, like I say to all of our teachers, if you wanna be treated as professionals, we need to act like professionals. Like it was, it it just was encouraging, it was inspiring. And I felt like I was working with people who really wanted to to look for successful solutions. Like so with Aaron and Lauren, it's not all the reasons why we can't do something, it's how can we work together to do it? And if it's good for students and staff, we're gonna find a solution and we're going to get it done. So the innovation grant uh, and actually launching like some of the nation's first public. Neighborhood expanded learning time schools was huge. Um, Being creative with how we were gonna stipend teachers, how we're gonna have teachers on split schedules. So some would work 7.30 to 2.30, others would work nine to four. Like we just got so creative and all the things that people were saying out there about unions, we debunked with one grant and one program. Like, no, teachers are innovative. No, unions can partner with administration to get great things done for students. That's fantastic. I can just hear your enthusiasm. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Jan. And I appreciate your leadership. And and Lauren, you know how much I enjoy working with you too. So thanks for having me on the podcast, but more importantly, thanks for being great partners.
7: And Lauren, thank you for co-hosting and engaging in the discussion and really for being such a strong advocate for labor leadership and local, both at the local and the state level. Thank you. Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks: Justice for All.
2: I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers.
8: I am your co-host, Andrea Parker, and I'm joined with
9: your other co-host, Jim Staros. So we're back with our two guests today, Chuck Stark from Washington High School, science teacher, and Lauren Bianchi, also from Washington High School, who is a history teacher. How are you guys doing today? Doing well, thank you.
3: Also doing pretty well, just uh, recovering from a nasty bout with COVID. Oh, Um, no. First time, don't recommend
9: it. All right. (laughs) We'll we'll keep that in mind. COVID, a thumbs down from Lauren. That's, That's what we've got so far.
8: Thank you all for being here today, and I'm so sorry you have my empathy and my sympathy, Lauren, for your battle with COVID. But again, because you have been through a even bigger battle, I would say, um, with CPS, I know that COVID probably will be stand less. does a chance. That's right, doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Mm-hmm. There you so go. Can you all talk about the campaign to keep General Iron from moving to the southeast side? And why did the city want to relocate General Iron in the first place?
10: You know, this, this goes, this obviously goes, goes way back. I think many people know that uh general iron was operating up on the North branch of the Chicago river in Lincoln mm-hmm. park. Right. Okay. Over time, Lincoln park has, has drastically changed um, demographics. And as it's been changing demographics, it's become an area that has become uh, much more white, much more wealthy and a lot of the industry from what used to be an industrial corridor um, had been gradually moving out over the years. And one of the last strongholds of that industrial corridor was General Iron. Eventually, the, the residents of the, the neighborhood pushed enough, and then the large development Lincoln Yards finally sealed the deal saying, this has got to go. This doesn't fit what we want this neighborhood to look like. Um, where else can it go? and the city underneath the administration of Rahm Emanuel helped broker a deal uh, to move it and sell it to RMG, which uh, is located right across the street from George Washington High School. That move was brokered by the Emanuel administration, um, but it was signed, sealed, and delivered by the Lightfoot administration. They actually signed a document saying that the city would do whatever was within their power to facilitate the move. Um, So let's get it out of this area um where we want fancy development let's move it down here where there's already lots of industry it doesn't hurt to have another one over here
9: you know trying to fight against General Iron's bid to open up in in a predominantly African American community where we've already got so many health issues so much pollution so many problems and and they had that report that it was um what the African American community has an average life expectancy with 30 years difference depending on on what zip code you live in yeah something like that. And this is one of the main reasons is to this kind of environmental racism that's being, you know, pushed into the city for the profit of certain companies and and you know things like that. You know, you guys went to protest and CPS decided instead of being like, hey, these are some teachers who are really standing up for their kids, they're showing the students how to really take civic responsibility. That wasn't really the way they handled it, was it? They decided they were going to try to move to terminate you two. It really seemed like that's where things were heading. Then the board turns around and says otherwise. Um, why do you think that was, and how how did the, all this sort of transpire? Because it really did seem like you know everything we heard sounded like it was really way further up the food chain, and just the principal or the network that was really trying to push to get you out.
3: So I'll start by saying this. Um, This was a more than two-year fight. It stretches on uh, beyond that, but in terms of teachers and students and parents at Washington High School and the elementary school being involved um, more than two years. And part of why I think many of us felt that we needed to play a role in this fight was that social justice is embedded in our schools like mission. Our school leaders encourage us to teach culturally relevant curriculum, to talk about issues that matter to our students. Um, And so we were supported by the community. I never thought that anything that I was doing would lead to me risking my career, really, until it became evident that that was happening.
10: (laughs) You know, Lauren was saying, we thought we were going to lose. And Andrea, you you said something like we as teachers set the precedent. And I think most people thought we were going to lose. And I think, as we know from history, when 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 there's a movement that that people think is going to lose, it's people kind of like leave it alone. But the fact that we actually we we won and and put a lot of people in in power, in particular Mayor Lightfoot, um, put her in some really tough positions. That's when someone had to pay. Of all the people that were involved, we were potentially the most vulnerable as being in. Em- Employees of the Chicago Board of Education. It was yet again another fight that I think the powers that be thought this is going to be easy. They're non-tenured teachers. um, They don't have much of a chance here. Um, And I don't think they foresaw the the pushback that they were going to get from, from the CTU and from the Southeast Side community.
8: All right. So thank you again for listening to this episode of CTU Speak justice for all. We'll catch you again and remember we are CTU where we only speak what matters. See you next time. Bye. Hi, this
11: is Judy Ansel and that was Joni Mitchell Put up a parking lot. Well, we put up a lot of buildings. We don't know who's paying for them. Turns out we are. Cost reimbursements, enterprise zones, loans, bonds, grants, tax abatements, tax rebates, TIFs, industrial revenue bonds, star bonds, mega deals. The list of the ways corporations get subsidies from municipal, state, and federal governments is mind boggling. One of our guests tonight once called it a candy store for corporations. He's Greg Leroy, executive director of Good Jobs First, based in Washington, D.C. Greg founded Good Jobs First, a nonprofit, in 1998 upon winning the Public Interest Pioneer Award. Kathleen Poynter was the senior policy strategist for Kansas City, Missouri Public Schools. Her work focuses on the impact economic development, housing, and the education landscape have on students and their families. So was it always this way? Did we always have to cough up money in order to be able to get jobs? If not, when did it change and how did corporations get so much power to extract uh, these subsidies from us?
4: Yeah, so there's a thing called the I call the tax break industrial complex. It really dates back to the 1930s when a company called Fantas Factory Locating Service was born. This was the granddaddy of what are called site location consulting firms. That's companies that act as middlemen that run these secret auctions when companies are playing states against each other. So, for example, when Panasonic was pitting Kansas against Oklahoma, I think they used a consultant. They were, um, you know, requiring everybody to use code names and non-disclosure agreements and, and putting the pressure on the two states to keep upping the ante until both of them were over $1 billion in their offers. That system really took off after World War II and really went on steroids in the 70s and 80s after the interstate system got built and air conditioning was built in the south and a lot more companies started to run away from unions. And and the trouble is, by the 90s and aughts, Michigan and New York looked as bad as in their giveaway practices as South Carolina and Louisiana did. You know, the states, the northern states basically copied the southern states, and they all got on the, the giveaway bandwagon. And states like your own in the middle, you know, got the same squeeze.
11: Yeah. Um, and so you call it the tax break industrial complex. What other components does it have? I know, Kathleen, you recently uh, wrote an article where you talked about a company that um, you know, like went to City Hall and said, give us the money or we're moving to Kansas. I know that's one of the components, the threat of, and pitting one state against others. What uh, what other components are there of this industrial complex besides FANTAS and the site location folks?
4: Sure. So the site location firms, and there's about 300 of them now, wow.
0: sometimes
4: work on commission. That is, they get a share of the discretionary incentives that they negotiate, for, sometimes as much as 30%. So they are highly self-interested in maintaining corporate control of the system. At, at its core, the, the way the system works is, is asymmetric bargaining. That is, the companies have all the information. They they know what really matters. They may have already made their mind up about where they wanna go. They may be jerking everybody around except one place that they already like. And the, and the consultants, Run the auction and maybe take a, a cut of the action uh, when the deal goes down.
11: Uh, there's this term I know in the Missouri law called blight, and you are only allowed to use at least certain kinds of incentives in order to uh, ameliorate blight. And I remember looking at a map once of studies of tiffs in Kansas City, and you know all that blight t- turned out to be in the plaza in downtown. And and so, you know, how, how do they determine who gets the goodies? Who gets the candy?
8: Well, I'll let Greg answer some of that question, but I, I do think you bring up a really good point, and this is, you know, what Kansas City Public Schools is often talking about. We are not anti-economic development. We are not anti-tax incentive. There are deals every year the school district enthusiasts enthusiastically signed onto. But we do find that these tools are being used, um, for longer amounts of time, um, and at higher levels than in many of our peer communities. And we're finding them still used in areas like the Plaza and downtown. You know, when we look at the dollars abated from the school district, 90% of those are going for projects west of Troost. And yeah. folks in Kansas City, know, west of Troost has, um, enjoyed a lot of significant investment, um, East of truce, not so much. And we're not seeing um, a significant number of these projects getting these abatements occurring in those neighborhoods. Okay, Greg, do you wanna add anything about what blight is?
4: Yeah, sure. So when I talked about a TIF district uh, hurting, the official designation that's required is that the area is blighted. Blighted. The trouble is under case law in Missouri, that is court cases, that word means nothing. The extreme example was De missouri where a multinational company owned a mall westfield mall and said you know we think this mall is blighted now because we don't have a nordstrom yet
11: oh my gosh the plaza doesn't either they just lost a nordstrom oh no
4: (laughs) and and the city and the city council said you're right you know you're blighted we're going to give you a 31 million dollar TIF deal to bring in nordstrom and that was, and there were people who opposed that, and they they sued to try to block it, and all the way to your highest court. It's not called your Supreme Court; it has a different name. It was a. Lot, it was, they basically said, communities in Missouri can call anything they want blight, and therefore this TIF is legal for Nordstrom.
11: Oh gosh. Okay. Thank you so much, Greg, and thank you, Kathleen. Thank Thanks, you. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
0: You're listening to 4315, a podcast about empowering workers and exposing the union busting industry, presented by Labor Lab. For more information and resources about the right to unionize and how to protect it, visit laborlab.us. Hello and welcome to 4315.
12: Today we're speaking with Ty, who was fired from his position as a tour guide at Yellowstone National Park for engaging in organizing activity. Okay, let's start with the like more basic question. What's your name and what exactly do you do or did you do at Yellowstone before you were fired?
1: So my name is Ty Wheeler. Uh, myself along about seven of us, we were all guiding in Yellowstone in uh doing winter tours so if you go to yellowstone in the winter you have to take a tour guide in to get into the park and we were taking folks into america's best idea and giving them the time of their lives it honestly sounds like a lot of fun it's a it's a heck of a lot of fun uh definitely and it used to all be family-run companies that ran all of these trips into yellowstone And that, um, that honestly brings me to what I was going to ask you next. Um, so guides are employed by Delaware North, not Yellowstone directly, right? Yeah, so what Yellowstone decided to do was Delaware North has come in and bought up the contracts that the family, including the company that I was working for before, um, they bought up those contracts to operate in the park.
12: So the American Prospect reported that in winter of 2019, tourists started bringing COVID into Yellowstone. Now, our understanding is this is part of what inspired the organizing efforts.
1: Once they purchased the family-run companies, they didn't communicate their scheduling, so you wouldn't know until a couple days before, or maybe even an hour before, and they might call you in the morning and say, we need you to run a trip right now. So we had guides that were making maybe $100 a week, maybe $200 a week, um, barely able to pay their rent back to Delaware North, and they were ending up in the food bank line. On an average day, if you look at the number of trips that are run, Delaware North was making about eighty-four to $90,000 per day and paying in direct wages less than 4000 So the question became, wh- where? why not at least pay people enough if you're not going to give them enough trips um, that they can eat? Like, simple question, right? Yeah. So that that's what really pushed our effort to to just start that question of what what constitutes a livable wage and a decent life in america you want to talk about what the what management's response was once they realized that you were organizing <laughs> uh they just fired everyone we had an 80 page prospectus for unification identifying health care sick pay if you're sick um you know what does that look like and what's the base wage and then management brought folks in and fired them within the hours of, uh, that document leaking. I didn't know what the NLRB was. I just wanted to have a living wage in a conversation. Um, and I didn't know until there was a representative from the state of Montana that came down to picket with us and told us what our rights were and that it was illegal, uh, for them to fire folks. Um, So that's what started this whole mess was they fired uh, four of us. And then I wasn't fired yet till the next Monday after I picketed with uh, Sophie. But, you know, it's a rural town. They were forced out of company housing and people had to move to Utah within hours. Um, So the company had full leverage, your housing, your food, um, all of that. All they could just hold it on a string. And so that's a huge leverage factor for them to hold, um, especially in these rural towns.
12: After the firings, you all filed with the NLRB, and it was found that you were retaliated against, and you received a settlement, and that Yellowstone and Delaware North, there was a stipulation in there about rehiring. Um, So you still haven't been rehired.
1: I want to point out, that among those that were fired were NPS rangers that work in the park and work in other national parks. These are public servants that try to bring to attention the to the American public, like, hey, maybe maybe the narrative of our national park should be should be held to a higher standard and that the people that provide that narrative should have a better life.
12: We want to thank you so much for coming on to talk to us. And we definitely want to do some kind of follow-up episode as things develop.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you guys for what you do. I don't, these things, you know, money matters too. spend your money. With companies that are doing good, stop buying Amazon, stop buying Starbucks if they're not going to support these things because money is a transference of energy. And that's the only way we as a country are going to improve.
2: Thank you for coming on and talking
1: with us.
0: And that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150, count them, 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes, and you'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us, please do, on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, Labor Radio labor radio podcast weekly this has been chris Garlock. stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show